Part One of Shalock the Last. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Phil Chenevere. Shalock the Last by Lee Douglas Brackett. Part One. It was dark in the caves under Mercury. It was hot, and there was no sound in them but the slow plodding of Trevor's heavy boots. Trevor had been wandering for a long time, lost in this labyrinth where no human being had ever gone before, and Trevor was an angry man. Through no fault or will of his own he was about to die, and he was not ready to die. Moreover, it seemed a wicked thing to come to his final moment here in this stifling dark, buried under alien mountains high as Everest. He wished now that he had stayed in the valley. Hunger and thirst would have done for him just the same, but at least he would have died in the open like a man, and not like a rat trapped in a drain. Yet there was not really much to choose between them as a decent place to die. A barren little hell-hole the valley had been, even before the quake, with nothing to draw a man there except the hope of finding sunstones, one or two of which could transform a prospector into a plutocrat. Trevor had found no sunstones. The quake had brought down a whole mountain wall on his ship, leaving him with a pocket torch, a handful of food tablets, a canteen of water, and the scant clothing he stood in. He had looked at the naked rocks and the little river frothing green with chemical poisons, and he had gone away into the tunnels, the ancient blowholes of a cooling planet, gambling that he might find a way out of the valleys. Mercury's twilight belt is cut into thousands of cliff-locked pockets, as a honeycomb is cut into cells. There is no way over the mountains, for the atmosphere is shallow, and the jagged peaks stand up into airless space. Trevor knew that only one more such pocket lay between him and the open plains. If he could get to it, and through that last pocket he had thought, but he knew now that he was not going to make it. He was stripped to the skin already in the terrible heat. When the weight of his miner's boots became too much to drag, he shed them, padding on over the rough rock with bare feet. He had nothing left now but the torch. When the light went, his last hope went with it. After a while, it went. The utter blackness of the grave shut down. Trevor stood still, listening to the pulse of his own blood in the silence, looking at that which no man needs a light to see. Then he flung the torch away and stumbled on, driven to fight still by the terror which was greater than his weakness. Twice he struck against the twisting walls and fell and struggled up again. The third time he remained on hands and knees and crawled. He crept on, a tiny creature entombed in the bowels of a planet. 
the boar grew smaller and smaller, tightening around him. From time to time he lost consciousness, and it became increasingly painful to struggle back to an awareness of the heat and the silence and the pressing rock. After one of these periods of oblivion he began to hear a dull, steady thunder. He could no longer crawl. The boar had shrunk to a mere crack, barely large enough for him to pass through worm-like on his belly. He sensed now a deep shuddering vibration in the rock. It grew stronger, terrifying in that enclosed space. Steam slipped wraith-like into the smothering air. The roar and the vibration grew to an unendurable pitch. Trevor was near to strangling in the steam. He was afraid to go on, but there was no other way to go. Quite suddenly his hands went out into nothingness. The rock at the tip of the boar must have been rotten with erosion. It gave way under his weight and pitched him headfirst into a thundering rush of water that was blistering hot and going somewhere in a great hurry through the dark. After that Trevor was not sure of anything. There was the scalding heat and the struggle to keep his head up, and the terrible speed of the submercurian river racing on to its destiny. He struck rocks several times, and once he held his breath for a whole eternity until the roof of the tunnel rose up again. He was only dimly aware of a long sliding fall downward through a sudden brightness. It was much cooler. He splashed feebly because his brain had not told his body to stop, and the water did not fight him. His feet and hands struck solid bottom. He floundered on, and presently the water was gone. He made one attempt to rise. After that he lay still. The great mountains leaned away from the sun. Night came, and with it violent storm and rain. Trevor did not know it. He slept, and when he woke the savage dawn was making the high cliffs flame with white light. Something was screaming above his head. Aching and leaden, stiff with exhaustion, he roused up and looked around him. He sat on a beach of pale gray sand. At his feet were the shallows of a gray-green lake that filled a stony basin some half-mile in breadth. To his left the underground river poured out of the cliff face, spreading into a wide, riffling fan of foam. Off to his right the water spilled over the rim of the basin to become a river again somewhere below, and beyond the rim, veiled in mist and the shadow of a mountain wall, was a valley. Behind him Crowding to the edge of the sand were trees and ferns and flowers, alien in shape and color, but triumphantly alive. And from what he could see the broad valley was green and riotous with growth. The water was pure, the air had a good smell, and it came to Trevor that he had made it. He was going to live a while longer after all. Forgetting his weariness, he sprang up, and the thing that had hissed and screamed above him swooped down and passed the clawed tip of a leathery wing so close to his face that it nearly gashed him. He stumbled backward, crying out, 
and the creature rose in a soaring spiral and swooped again. Trevor saw a sort of flying lizard, jet black except for a saffron belly. He raised his arms to ward it off, but it did not attack him, and as it swept by he saw something that woke in him amazement, greed, and a peculiarly unpleasant chill of fear. Around its neck the lizard thing wore a golden collar, and set into the scaly flesh of its head, into the bone itself it seemed, was a sunstone. There was no mistaking that small, vicious flash of radiance. Trevor had dreamed of sunstones too long to be misled. He watched the creature rise again into the steamy sky and shivered, wondering who or what had set that priceless thing into the skull of a flying lizard, and why. It was the why that bothered him the most. Sunstones are not mere adornments for wealthy ladies. They are rare, radioactive crystals, having a half-life one-third greater than radium, and are used exclusively in the construction of delicate electronic devices dealing with frequencies above the first octave. Most of that relatively unexplored super-spectrum was still a mystery and the strangely jeweled and collared creature circling above him filled Trevor with a vast unease. It was not hunting. It did not wish to kill him. But it made no move to go away. From far down the valley, muted by distance to a solemn bell-note that rolled between the cliffs, Trevor heard the booming of a great song. A sudden desire for concealment sent him in among the trees. He worked his way along the shore of the lake. Looking up through the branches, he saw the black wings lift and turn, following him. The lizard was watching him with its bright, sharp eyes. It noted the path of his movements through the ferns and flowers as a hawk watches a rabbit. He reached the tip of the basin, where the water poured over in a cataract several hundred feet high. Climbing around the shoulder of a rocky bastion, Trevor had his first clear look at the valley. Much of it was still vague with mist, but it was broad and deep, with a sweep of level plain and clumps of forest locked tight between the barrier mountains. And as he made out other details, Trevor's astonishment grew out of all measure. The land was under cultivation. There were clusters of thatched huts among the fields, and in the distance was a rock-built city, immense and unmistakable, in the burning haze of dawn. Trevor crouched there, staring, and the winged lizard swung in lazy circles, watching, waiting, while he tried to think. A fertile valley such as this was rare enough in itself, but to find fields and a city was beyond belief. He had seen the aboriginal tribes that haunt some of the cliff-locked worlds of the twilight belt, subhuman peoples who live precariously among the bitter rocks and boiling springs, hunting the great lizards for food. None of this was ever built by them. Unless in this environment they had advanced beyond the age of stone. The gong sounded again its deep, challenging note. Trevor saw the tiny figures of mounted men 
no larger than ants at that distance, come down from the city and ride out across the plain. Relief and joy supplanted speculation in Trevor's mind. He was battered and starving, lost on an alien world, and anything remotely approaching the human and the civilized was better luck than he could have dreamed or prayed for. Besides, there were sunstones in this place. He looked hungrily at the head of the circling watcher, and then began to scramble down the broken outer face of the bastion. The black wings slipped silently after him down the sky. About a hundred feet above the valley floor he came to an overhang. There was no way past it but to jump. He clung to a bush and let himself down as far as he could, and then dropped some four or five yards to a slope of springy turf. The fall knocked the wind out of him, and as he lay gasping a chill doubt crept into his mind. He could see the land quite clearly now, the pattern of the fields, the far-off city. Except for the group of riders, nothing stirred. The fields, the plains were empty of life, the little villages still as death. And he saw, swinging lazily above a belt of trees by the river, a second black-winged shadow watching. The trees were not far away. The riders were coming toward them and him. It seemed to Trevor now that the men were perhaps a party of hunters, but there was something alarming about the utter disappearance of all other life. It was as though the gong had been a warning for all to take cover while the hunt was abroad. The sharp-eyed lizards were the hounds that went before to find and flush the game. Glancing up at the ominous sentinel above his own head, Trevor had a great desire to see what the quarry was that hid in the belt of trees. There was no way back to the partial security of the lake basin. The overhang cut him off from that. The futility of trying to hide was apparent, but nevertheless he wormed in among some crimson ferns. The city was at his left. To the right, the fertile plain washed out into a bad land of lava and scattered rock, which narrowed and vanished around a shoulder of purple basalt. This defile was still in deep shadow. The riders were still far away. He saw them splash across a ford, toy figures making little bursts of spray. The watcher above the trees darted suddenly downward. The quarry was breaking cover. Trevor's suspicions crystallized into an ugly certainty. Horror struck. He watched the bronzed, half-naked figure of a girl emerge from the brilliant undergrowth and run like an antelope toward the badland. The flying lizard rose, swooped, and struck. The girl flung herself aside. She carried a length of sapling bound with great thorns, and she lashed out with it at the black brute, grazed it, and ran on. The lizard circled and came at her again from behind. She turned. There was a moment of vicious confusion in which the leathery wings enveloped her in a kind of dreadful cloak, and then she was running again, but less swiftly, 
and Trevor could see the redness of blood on her body. And again the flying demon came. The thing was trying to herd her, turn her back toward the huntsman. But she would not be turned. She beat with her club at the lizard and ran and fell and ran again. And Trevor knew that she was beaten. The brute would have the life out of her before she reached the rocks. Every dictate of prudence told Trevor to stay out of this. Whatever was going on was obviously the custom of the country, and none of his business. All he wanted was to get hold of one of these sunstones, and then find a way out of this valley. That was going to be trouble enough without taking on any more. But Prudence was swept away in the fury that rose in him as he saw the hawk swoop down again, with its claws outspread and hungry for the girl's tormented flesh. He sprang up, shouting to her to fight, to hang on, and went running full speed down the slope toward her. She turned upon him a face of such wild, fierce beauty as he had never seen, the eyes dark and startled and full of a terrible determination. Then she screamed at him in his own tongue, Look out! He had forgotten his own nemesis. Black wings, claws, the lash of a scaly tail striking like a whip, and Trevor went down, rolling over and staining the turf red as he rolled. From far off he heard the voices of the huntsmen, shrill and strident, lifted in a wild halloo. For some reason the assault steadied Trevor. He got to his feet and took the club out of the girl's hands. Regretting the gun that was buried under a ton of rock on the other side of the mountains. Keep behind me, he said. Watch my back. She stared at him strangely, but there was no time for questions. They began to run together toward the Badland. It seemed a long way off. The lizard screamed and hissed above them. Trevor hefted the club. It was about the size and weight of a baseball bat. He had once been very good at baseball. "'They're coming,' said the girl. "'Lie down flat,' he told her, and went on more slowly. She dropped behind him in the grass, her fingers closing over a fragment of stone. The wide wings whistled down. Trevor braced himself. He could see the evil eyes, yellow and bright as the golden colors, and the brilliant flash of the sunstones against the jetty scales of the head. They were attacking together, but at different angles, so that he could not face them both. He chose the one that was going to reach him first, and waited. He let it get close, very close, diving swiftly with its scarlet tongue forking out of its hissing mouth, and its sharp claws spread. Then he swung the club with all his might. It connected. He felt something break. The creature screamed, and then the force of its dive carried it on into him, and he lost his footing in a welter of thrashing wings and floundering body. He fell, and the second lizard was on him. The girl rose. In three long strides she reached him and flung herself upon the back of the scaly thing that ravaged him. He saw her trying to pin it to the ground, hammering methodically at its head with the stone. 
he kicked off the wounded one. He had broken its neck, but it was in no hurry to die. He caught up the club, and presently the second brute was dead. Trevor found it quite easy to pick up the sunstone. He held it in his hand, a strange, tawny, jewel-like thing, with a scrap of bone still clinging to it. It glinted with inner fires, deep and subtle, and an answering spark of wild excitement was kindled in Trevor from the very touch and feel of it, so that he forgot where he was or what he was doing, forgot everything but the eerie crystal that gleamed against his palm. It was more than a jewel, more even than wealth that he held there. It was hope and success and a new life. He had thrown years away prospecting the bitter Mercurian wastes. This trip has been his last gamble, and it had ended with his ship gone, his quest finished, and nothing to look forward to even if he did get back safely, but to become one of the penniless, aging planet drifters he'd always pitied. Now all that was changed. This single stone would let him go back to Earth a winner and not a failure. It would pay off all the dreary, lonesome, hazardous years. It would, it would do so many things if he could get out of this godforsaken valley with it. If. The girl had got her breath again. Now she said urgently, Come, they are getting near. Trevor's senses, bemused by the sunstone, registered only vaguely the external stimuli of sight and sound. The riders had come closer. The beasts they rode were taller and slighter than horses. They were not hoofed, but clawed. They had narrow, vicious-looking heads with spiny crests that stood up erect and arrogant. They came fast, carrying their riders lightly. The men were still too far away to distinguish features, but even at that distance, Trevor sensed something peculiar about their faces, something unnatural. They wore splendid harness, and their half-clad bodies were bronzed, but not nearly so deeply as the girl's. The girl shook him furiously, stirring him out of his dream. "'Do you want to be taken alive? Before, the beast would have torn us apart, and that is quickly over. But we kill the hawks, don't you understand?' Now they will take us alive. He did not understand in the least, but her obvious preference for a very nasty death instead of capture made him find reserves of strength he thought he had lost in the underground river. There was also the matter of the sunstone. If they caught him with it, they would want it back. Clutching the precious thing, he turned with the girl and ran. The lava bed was beginning to catch the sun now. The splintered rock showed through, bleak and ugly. The bad land and the defile beyond seemed like an entrance into hell, but it did offer shelter of a sort if they could make it. The drumming of padded feet behind was loud in his ears. He glanced over his shoulder once. He could see the faces of the huntsmen now. They were not good faces, in either feature or expression, and he saw the thing about them that he had not noticed before, the unnatural thing. In the center of each forehead, above the eyes, 
a sunstone was set into flesh and bone. First the hawk lizards, and now these. Trevor's heart contracted with an icy pang. These men were human, as human as himself, and yet they were not. They were alien and wicked and altogether terrifying, and he began to understand why the girl did not wish to come alive into their hands. Fleet, implacable, the crested mounts with their strange riders were sweeping in upon the two who fled. The leader took from about his saddle a curved throwing stick and held it poised. The sunstone set in his brow flashed like a third an evil eye. The lava and the fangs of rock shimmered in the light. Trevor yearned toward them. The brown girl running before him seemed to shimmer also. It hurt very much to breathe. He thought he could not go any farther, but he did, and when the girl faltered he put his arm around her and steadied her on. He continued to keep an eye out behind him. He saw the curved stick come hurtling toward him, and he managed to let it go by. The others were ready now as they came within range. It seemed to Trevor that they were watching him with a peculiar intensity, as though they had recognized him as a stranger, and had almost forgotten the girl in their desire to take him. His bare feet trod on lava already glowing hot under the sun. A spur of basalt reared up, and made a shield against the throwing sticks. In a minute or two, Trevor and the girl were hidden in a terrain of such broken roughness as the man had seldom seen. It was as though some demoniac giant had whipped the molten lava with a pudding-spoon, cracking mountains with his free hand and tossing in the pieces. He understood now why the girl had waited for daylight to make her break. To attempt this passage in the dark would be suicidal. He listened nervously for sounds of pursuit. He could not hear any, but he remained uneasy, and when the girl flung herself down to rest, he asked, "'Shouldn't we go further? They might still come.' She did not answer him at once beyond a shake of the head. He realized that she was looking at him almost as intently as the riders had. It was the first chance she had had to examine him, and she was making the most of it. She noted the cut of his hair the stubble of beard, the color and texture of his skin, the rags of his shorts that were all he had to cover him. Very carefully she noted them, and then she said in an odd, slow voice, as though she were thinking of something else, Mounted, the Corins are afraid of nothing, but afoot and in here they are afraid of ambush. It has happened before. They can die, you know, just the same as we do. Her face, for all its youth, was not the face of a girl. It was a woman who looked at Trevor, a woman who had already learned the happy, the passionate, and the bitter things, who had lived with pain and fear, and knew better than to trust anyone but herself. "'You aren't one of us,' she said. "'No, I came from beyond the mountains.' He could not tell whether she believed him or not. Who or what are the Corins? The lords of Corinth, she answered, and began to tear strips from the length of white linen cloth she wore twisted about her waist. There will be time to talk later, 
We still have far to go. Here, this will stop the bleeding. In silence they bound each other's wounds and started off again. If Trevor had not been so unutterably weary, and the way so hard, he would have been angry with the girl. And yet there was nothing really to be angry about except that he sensed she was somehow suspicious of him. Many times they had to stop and rest. Once he asked her, Why were they, the Corins, hunting you? I was running away. Why were they hunting you? Damned if I know. Accident, perhaps. I happened to be where their hawks were flying. The girl wore a chain of iron links around her neck, a solid chain with no clasp, too small to be pulled over the head. From it hung a round tag with a word stamped on it. Trevor took the tag in his hand. Galt, he read. Is that your name? My name is Jen. Galt is the Corin I belong to. He led the hunt. She gave Trevor a look of fierce and challenging pride and said, as though she were revealing a secret earldom, I am a slave. How long have you been in the valley, Jen? You and I are the same stock, speaking the same language, earth stock. How does it happen, a colony of this size that no one ever heard of? It's been nearly three hundred years since the landing, she answered. I have been told that for generations my people kept alive the hope that a ship would come from Earth and release them from the Corins. It never came. And except by ship there was no way in or out of the valley. Trevor glanced at her sharply. I found a way in all right, and I'm beginning to wish I hadn't. And if there's no way out, where are we going? I don't know myself, said Jen, and rose. But my man came this way, and others before him. She went on, and Trevor went with her. There was no place else to go. End of Part One